All right, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we want to look at verses 1 through 8 tonight, Lord willing. Have you ever engaged in role-playing as an educational tool? How many of you have done some role-playing before? All right, I hate it. No, I really do, because it's not true, but uh, it's, it's when you rehearse a scenario that you might encounter in the real world in order to learn and practice the necessary skills uh, so that you're in a less stressful environment. For example, at our law enforcement chaplain training seminars, uh, as weird as it sounds, we role-play death notifications. And so the, the new chaplain trainees, you know, they play chaplains, and then the rest of us we play survivors of uh, individuals who are deceased, and we do all kinds of crazy things to them to, to ruin their death notification. You know? and so, um, but it, it's important because you, you, know, you, you have to have some practice doing some of these things, uh, and, and, and role-playing can accomplish that uh, on several levels. Now, this next section of Romans, uh, it reminds me sort of of a role-play. We might call it an apologetics role-play, because Paul asks anticipated real-world questions, and then he answers them. I'm sure that these were questions he had encountered from Jews as he taught in their synagogues. As you recall from the book of Acts, Paul's pattern was to go into a city and to find the local synagogue and to go in, and as a visiting teacher, rabbi, he would be asked to share a message, and he would share, and as he was sharing the message of the grace of God and justification by, uh, you know, uh, faith in Jesus Christ, he would get asked these questions. And so here in his letter to the Romans, as he's addressing Jews, he anticipates that they would have these questions as well, and so he asks and he answers them as if he were actually there. The questions are arguments or complaints that a devout Jew might ask in light of Paul's teaching in chapter 2. He had established that being born a Jew and having God's law and being circumcised did not save anyone. And he would go on to clearly state, there is none righteous, neither Jew nor Gentile. If anyone is to be saved, God must declare them righteous, which he does when a person believes in Jesus Christ. If a Jew is just as lost as a Gentile, then why did God make such a distinction between Jews and Gentiles? If there was some definite advantage to be found in the nation of Israel and in the fact that the Jew was marked off by the command of God, by the cutting of the flesh to symbolize the covenant, how could Paul say that circumcision had brought nothing to the Jews unless there was a corresponding spiritual cutting of the heart. And so this is the, the, really the first reaction that you would have as a devout Jew to any message by the Apostle Paul. Anytime Paul spoke to Jews, he started talking about the righteousness that comes by faith and not by the law. And he would say what sounded to you like crazy things like circumcision doesn't mean anything unless it's the circumcision of the heart and you would finally get frustrated and say well what advantage then to being a Jew what's what's all this with God's distinction between Jews and Gentiles and that's what it says in verse 1 what advantage then has the Jew what is the profit of circumcision and really the point of the question is God is the one who called us Jews 
made us his nation and gave us circumcision. So it's kind of they're not really buying it. Now, the fact that there are none righteous, however, doesn't mean Jews had no advantage over others. The Jew, in fact, had a great advantage over the Gentile, and it's expressed clearly in verse 2. Paul says, much in every way, chiefly because to them, to the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. Paul will later expand on the advantages of the Jewish people When we get to Romans chapter 9 and verse 4, he's going to explain that Israel also had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. And and so he just extols the the blessings and the benefits uh, that were given to Israel. By the oracles of God, Paul means the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Paul doesn't need to say too much about why this is an advantage because he had alluded to it in his teaching in the previous chapters. There, especially in chapter 2, we saw that the Gentile has the witness of creation and conscience. And so you're a Gentile somewhere in the first century world, of uh, the Roman world, uh, and um, you're not really into the Hebrew Scriptures, you're not really very familiar with them, but wherever you are, you have a witness in creation, Uh, that there is a God and of the Godhead and you have an internal witness of conscience and we looked in depth at those and we suggested that if a Gentile responds to the limited witness that he has, God will see to it that he receives a greater special revelation of himself, namely the Word of God in some form. Now the Jew already has God's special revelation of himself. Obviously, a tremendous advantage over the Gentile. God describes Gentiles in Acts 17 as being scattered all over the world and they are groping as if in the dark looking for a light and seeing a pinpoint of light and going towards that light as it were and God bringing them more light. The Jew had the light of God's word. He had the complete Old Testament and uh, God had revealed himself uh, in words in that document, in those documents, and so a great advantage. Uh, The Word of God wasn't simply available to them. It says it was committed to them. It was theirs to read, to study, to proclaim. They were its guardians, its copiers, its uh, proclaimers. Think of it this way. Is it better to have in your hands a complete Bible, or would you be just as knowledgeable about Jesus Christ if you only had a small portion, maybe a page or two, like many believers in countries even today, like communist China. Well, of course, you're better off with, a, with the entire Bible. You want the, you want the greatest amount of revelation you can get so that you can compare Scripture with Scripture and get a, a really complete picture of who God is. And so the Jew had a great advantage. The fact that a Jew didn't get saved because he had the Scriptures or circumcision doesn't mean he was at a disadvantage. He was at a great advantage. They had this revelation that they needed. But Paul had pointed out that many Jews remained unsaved. And this would be a shock, uh, as we talked about a few weeks ago as well. There are a lot of people who believe that they they are born into a right relationship with God physically, that they happen to be born uh, Italian Catholics. And of course, all Italian Catholics are saved. That's what you're taught. And so are all Irish Catholics. In fact, all Catholics 
are saved eventually. And so, uh, and the Jew felt, well, I, we're part of God's what? Elect. We're the chosen people. We have the scriptures. I've been circumcised. I have the mark of the covenant in my flesh. Uh, we're saved. But Paul had suggested that many Jews were not saved. Doesn't it therefore follow that if this was God's plan to call out this nation, this elect people, and give them all these resources, and then they didn't get saved, didn't it follow that God was a failure? Had not God made certain unconditional promises to Israel, even indicating that all Israel would be saved? Well, in verse 3, Paul anticipates this when he says, What if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God with no effect? Paul used the word some. What if some Jews did not believe? In fact, as to the coming of Jesus Christ as their Savior, the leaders of the nation of Israel and most of its citizens had rejected him and did not believe. And so he's being kind here, really. It's not that some Jews didn't believe. He says the vast majority of the nation of Israel did not believe uh, in Jesus Christ. It seemed to make God ineffective in reaching them. It seemed that his plan of salvation was flawed. I mean, being respectful and just looking at it through human eyes, when you think about, and this is a famous thing, you know, that you've heard a million different times, but <clears throat> when you think about just the raw results of the ministry of Jesus Christ there at the cross before the resurrection, if you just look up to the, the cross, it's an abysmal failure. You know, he's, he's healed all these people, he's fed all these people, he's offered the kingdom of God, and then at the end they say, how about you release Barabbas to us, kill this guy, uh, and let's just go on living the way we've always been living. By the way, I don't see any... Well, there's, yeah, there's the one disciple, John, uh, but everybody else is scattered. His big rock, Peter, he just got schooled by an 11-year-old girl at the fire. He's running somewhere. And so it's an abysmal failure. You have to look at that and say, hey, what kind of a plan really is that? It's like, it's like Rocky Balboa in all of the Rocky movies. His plan is to get beat nearly to death. And then all of a sudden he rises like a phoenix out of the ashes when, he's, you know, when his opponent is so tired from slugging him that he can't keep his arms up anymore and Rocky gets mad. Then, then it's on like Donkey Kong. I mean, you know, it's all over now. What's he, I remember that's that one scene where he goes, what's he doing? He's getting mad, you know, and then he comes back, bah, 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 you know, and uh, he's, he's just been pounded into oblivion by, you know, and, and stuff. And so you look and you think, well, what kind of a plan was that? Jesus is dead. The disciples have fled. It's all unraveling. And so, uh, you know, that's the accusation. Jews aren't saved. What advantage to being a Jew? Well, here's the advantage. Well, okay. But if it was God's plan to, to do all this through Israel, how come it didn't happen? Even today, by the way, there are folks who suggest that it shows some sort of failure on God's part if a person Jesus died for ultimately rejects Him. They thus suggest that the Lord did not die for everyone, only those who knew that He would uh, save and so they limit the scope of his work on the cross to include only those who actually believe. Their teaching goes by various names, but it's known most commonly as limited atonement. We would disagree with them. We would say something like Paul did in verse 4, certainly not. 
Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. We like the animated movie Megamind. How many of you have seen Megamind? A few of you? Code. Good movie. But uh, anyway, uh, there's a line of dialogue spoken by Megamind to his helper, Minion. (laughs) He'd been wrong, but he couldn't quite bring himself to admit it. And so he says to him, you were right, I was less right. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great line. Whenever there's a question whether God or man is right, always proceed on the basis that God is right and every man is not just less right, but by comparison, a liar. That's the kind of line this is. It's like, God, you were right, I was a liar by comparison to think that anything that you said might fail. Charles Spurgeon said on this particular phrase, let God be true and every man a liar, he said, it's a strange and strong expression, but none too strong. If God says one thing and every man in the world says another, God is true and all men are false. God speaks the truth and cannot lie. God cannot change. His word, like himself, it's immutable. We are to believe God's truth if nobody else believes it. The general consensus of opinion is nothing to a Christian. He believes God's word and he thinks more of that than the universal opinion of men. And so that's the the thrust of this statement that God in his words and especially in his plan is true and to accuse him of uh, being ineffective or of failing, uh, that makes man a liar. God is faithful. Unbelief within the elect nation does not render his word or his plan ineffective. Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, God is always right, period. That's the way it is. He could have stopped there, but then he added something. He said at the end of this, he said that you, God, may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Commentators feel this is a quote from Psalm 51, verse 4, and that's the psalm in which David is repentant for his sins of adultery and murder. Despite David's massive failures as a man of God, as the king of Israel, God remained faithful to his word and to his overall plan for the nation of Israel. You see, God had made a promise to David that of the fruit of his body, he would set upon his throne the Messiah who would spring from him, that he would of David's seed raise up unto Israel a Savior. Then David sins grossly, but it did not make the word of God ineffective, not at all. God saw to it that his plan remained intact. David declared that God was justified in his words. What words? Probably his promise that through him Jesus would be born. And then David declared of God that he would overcome when he is judged. The word overcome can be translated pure. God may be judged by men, but he remains pure in his faithfulness to keep his promises despite the fact men still sin. And so the argument here was, God said he was going to do these things for Israel and save Israel, and then you're saying a bunch of Jews aren't saved. So is God's plan failing? And Paul says that's impossible. 
And even in a small portion of it where you see David, uh, where you would think, wow, you know, God promised this guy that through him the Messiah would come, and it seems like he is doing everything he can to ruin that. God still overrules and sees to it that his plan uh, comes to fruition. Next, you start to wonder if it's a good thing that I sin so that God can put his grace and mercy on display. And if it is, why does God judge me for it? And that's the question or the complaint of verse 5. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. If our unrighteousness, our sin, demonstrates the righteousness or the holiness of God, then it seems unjust for God to judge us for it. If God is in control of everything, doesn't it follow that I am merely His puppet? And Paul quickly adds, I'm speaking as a man, meaning this is a silly argument. It's a complaint in a role play, not a valid conclusion. These are things that people would say to him uh, when he gave this teaching. Uh, when they misunderstood the message of grace. The Jew was so steeped in the law and in believing that righteousness, a right standing with God, came through the keeping of the law of Moses, the outward ordinances and the rituals and all, that when Paul began to talk about grace and setting aside physical circumcision for spiritual circumcision, these kinds of things, they would have all these complaints about it and one of them would say that well if what you're saying is true if if God is glorified if his grace is magnified you know against the backdrop of human sin then you're saying that it would be better for us to sin and how can God hold me accountable then for it and so in verse 6 Paul just says certainly not for then how would God judge the world God does not encourage or condone sin to bring glory to himself if he did He'd have no basis upon which to judge men at all. Now, the Jews could not deny the revelation of Scripture that God definitely would judge sin, and so their argument or their complaint must be wrong. Verse 7, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? This is another way to state the same argument. If sin brings glory to God, if my lie, for instance, reveals His glorious truth, how can he judge me as a sinner? And then verse 8, Why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. Taking this even further, if my sin brings greater opportunity for God to be revealed in his holiness, then why not really go for it and just sin as much as possible? Why not sin and sin and sin so that grace might abound? And people say, what are you doing sinning so much so that grace might abound? Look how much God is able to forgive and to forgive and to forgive. By the way, uh, what Paul is doing is taking their argument out to its logical and farthest conclusion. And one good way of examining a teaching or a theology is to take it out to its conclusion. If I believe this here, where does that lead me in my walk with the Lord? What does that eventually tell me about the nature and the character of God? I, I might as well know that before I get there. Uh, the Christian, Christian doctrine it shouldn't be a mystery that you... 
you are, are waiting to get to the end of it. You know what I mean? You don't want to be led along a little at a time and come to an erroneous conclusion. Just figure out where, where are you taking me with this kind of teaching? What's the ultimate conclusion? For example, we, we don't talk about it too much because it's been, uh, it's still out there, but you know, it, it's been talked about uh, a lot, the, what, what's been called the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel, the idea that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy uh, and that if you have enough faith, you can speak these things into existence and you can have, you'd never be sick. And if you are physically sick, you just speak with your mouth the fact that you're well and, you know, and you build your faith and all of these kinds of things. Um, ultimately, that doesn't really work out. A lot of people have tried that, they're still trying it, and they don't end up healthy. They don't end up wealthy. And when they go back to those who are teaching this, who, by the way, are hiding their sickness and are only wealthy because they're ripping you off, uh, then they tell them, well, it's not the teaching that's wrong. It's you that's wrong. You don't have enough faith because this is all based on your faith in faith. It's as if faith is the force and may the force be with you. You know, and, and apparently the force is not with you because if it were, you would be healthy and you would be wealthy. Uh, I remember as a pastor down in San Bernardino visiting a lady, or actually I was visiting somebody else and I got cornered by a lady in, in the uh, insane asylum uh, down there. Uh, and she had been admitted for attempting suicide because she got sucked into this kind of a doctrine and then she kept going to this faith church and she needed money and they didn't give her any. They just told her to have faith and she eventually got evicted. And when she went to the church and said, yeah, I've been evicted, they said, well, you didn't have enough faith. We can't help you. You know, you're, you're shut out of the community of believers because obviously there's, you know, you're, you're, and so she decided to take it to her logical conclusion. She said, well, if I don't have enough faith and you're not going to tell me how to have more faith and you're going to help me along the way, I might as well just kill myself. And so she attempted to commit suicide. And so you, you really, sometimes you need to think, where is this leading? Where is this kind of a teaching leading? What am I going to be like? Am I going to be like this guy? Do I want to be like this guy or this gal? Is this, where, is this the conclusion that I want to get to? And so Paul is saying, hey, you know, the conclusion of your argument is that you might as well just sin and sin and sin. And by the way, we're not really teaching that. Sinning so that grace might abound was what the Jews always accused Paul of teaching because they didn't understand if you take away, as in a sense, they believed he was taking away the law of God and that it would leave a void in which you would just sin because there would be nothing to restrain you and then you would say, look at God's grace abounding. And they, they totally misunderstood grace because he emphasized the grace of God and because they didn't understand it they said that he was not just condoning sin, but actually encouraging it. Paul says this is slander. He nowhere taught that you should sin so that grace might abound. Rather, since sin abounds already, grace must much more abound if you are ever to be saved. His answer to this last set of complaints was, their condemnation is just. And I believe here he's referring to sinners and saying that it is just for God to condemn them. Remember, this argument sort of began with them saying, it, it, you know, if, if, unrighteous, if our sin and unrighteousness glorifies God, then how can God judge us at all? And Paul says, no, 
condemnation, judgment is just. God must condemn sin and sinners because he is holy. But he is also love and not willing that any should perish. And that's where his grace comes in. Grace is the only means by which to resolve the problem of how a holy God can receive sinners. We've talked about this a couple of different times and we'll continue to talk about it. The problem of sin is a huge problem. Uh, it, It really, it can only be overcome one way and that is by God becoming a man and dying to satisfy the penalty for sin but also give believing sinners power over sin. There's no other possible method in the created universe in which we live for anyone to have a relationship with God. There's, there's, you know, it's, a, it's a two plus two equals four equation. Anything else, any, any works that you might do, any other religion, any amount of meditation, any human philosophy, it's a two plus two equals ten. It, it doesn't pan out. Uh, it, it won't work out. And so uh, grace is the only answer. God can be both just and the justifier of sinners because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. His grace gift of Jesus provides the only possible solution to sin. On the cross, sin is judged and sinners are saved. To suggest that grace condones or encourages sin is to totally misunderstand sin, the Savior, and salvation. If we find ourselves sometimes accused of preaching a gospel that is too open and too centered on faith, and grace and God's work to the exclusion of ours, then we find ourselves in good company with the Apostle Paul. In Romans 6.1, Paul's going to say, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Having just proclaimed that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, Paul confronts the argument that he is preaching that we should go ahead and sin, considering that God's grace is greater. And then a little later on in Romans 6, in verse 15, he writes, What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Paul preaches so much of God's grace as being different from God's law that he's accused of being soft on sin due to his heavy grace preaching. And then in Romans 7, Paul wrote, verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Having preached about the power of the law to incite sin, Paul is accused of preaching that the law is a bad thing. He refutes that with this argument going on to state that the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The idea is that wherever Paul went and talked about grace, especially among the Jews, he was accused of being a person that was setting people free to sin, not from sin. And and they were misunderstanding grace because they were so steeped in the idea that I can do something to save myself. I can cooperate with God and in that cooperation, in that cutting away of the flesh, in those outward rituals, in the keeping of the Sabbath, in the washing of hands, in all of the various tithings I do and everything that I do, that is how I'm saved and that's how I know I'm not sinning because I'm keeping these laws and God cannot accuse me. And then Jesus comes along and the apostles after him and say, you've done nothing about the heart. You could keep all of those outward regulations. And in fact, in one place he says your your righteousness needs to even exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, You can keep all of those and still not be saved because it's a matter of the heart. And 
the only way that we can be changed from within is by believing that Jesus has kept the law for us, died to fulfill its perfect requirements, and risen from the dead to save us. I ran across this quote about grace. It's, uh, the author says, Once you are justified by faith, you can do what you want. But if you want to do all the things you did before you knew Jesus, you don't know anything about grace. That's the idea. On this side of grace, before you get saved, people say, wait a minute, you're saying I can do anything I want. And Paul would essentially say, I am. As a Christian, you can do anything you want to do. But if you're a Christian, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you won't want to do the things that you used to do because God will have changed you from within. And, and people are like, spun out about it until finally by faith they just simply receive the gift and then they're changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye as it were, from old creatures into new creatures. If you want to do all the things you did before you knew Jesus, you don't know anything about grace. By the way, the message of grace balances itself out. Titus 2.11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then Paul says, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so his understanding was that God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness. Grace becomes our instructor. You and I do not live by rules. We live in a relationship to Jesus Christ. I'll close with this. Someone compiled the following list, which I found in a sermon by D.L. Moody. It goes like this. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law speaks of what man must do for God. Grace tells of what Christ has done for man. The law addresses man as part of the old creation. Grace makes man a member of the new creation. The law says, this do and thou shalt live. Grace says, live and then thou shalt do this. The law demands holiness. Grace gives holiness. Amen. Praise the Lord. So happy to be under grace and not under the law.